You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Oliver Berkman. Oliver is a journalist and author. He wrote a weekly column for The Guardian uh, called This Column Will Change Your Life, which he published as the collection Help How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done in 2011. He is the author of the 2012 book The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking which I haven't read, but the title makes me want to read it because I absolutely despise positive thinking. <laughs> um, and most recently of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, which I am going to talk to Oliver about today. And I want to begin in a slightly unusual way, but please bear with me. I am going to read um, a little a little tiny bit um, from um, Samuel Johnson. And uh, um, this is from Samuel Johnson's, um, an essay that he wrote for the Rambler uh, magazine uh, on the 29th of June, 1751. He writes, the folly of allowing ourselves to delay what we know cannot be finally escaped is one of the general weaknesses, which in spite of the instruction of moralists and the remonstrances of reason, prevail to a greater or lesser degree in every mind, even they who most steadily withstand it find it, if not the most violent, the most pertinacious of their passions, always renewing its attacks, and though often vanquished, never destroyed. It is indeed natural to have particular regard to the time present, and to be most solicitous for that which is by its nearness enabled to make the strongest impressions. When therefore any sharp pain is to be suffered or any formidable danger to be incurred, we can scarcely exempt ourselves wholly from the seducements of imagination. We readily believe that another day will bring some support or advantage which we now want, and are easily persuaded that the moment of necessity, which we desire never to arrive, is at a great distance from us. Thus, Life is languished away in the gloom of anxiety and consumed in collecting resolution which the next morning dissipates, in forming purposes which we scarcely hope to keep, and reconciling ourselves to our own cowardice by excuses which, while we admit them, we know to be absurd. Our firmness is by the continual contemplation of misery hourly impaired. Every submission to our fear enlarges its dominion. We not only waste that time in which the evil we dread might have been suffered and surmounted, but even where procrastination produces no absolute increase of our difficulties, make them less superable to ourselves by habitual terrors. When evils cannot be avoided, it is wise to contract the interval of expectation, to meet 
the mischiefs which will overtake us if we fly and suffer only their real malignity with it, without the causes of doubt and anguish of anticipation. There are other causes of inactivity, incident to more active faculties and more acute discernment. He to whom many objects of pursuit arise at the same time will frequently hesitate between different desires till a rival has precluded him, or change his course as new attractions prevail and harass himself without advancing. He that has abilities to conceive perfection will not easily be content without it, and since perfection cannot be reached, will lose the opportunity of doing well in the vain hope of unattainable excellence. The certainty that life cannot be long, and the probability that it will be much shorter than nature allows, ought to awaken every man to the active prosecution of whatever he is desirous to perform. It is true that no diligence can ascertain success. Death may intercept the swiftest career. But he who is cut off in the execution of an honest undertaking has at least the honour of falling in his rank and has fought the battle though he missed the victory. So (laughs) (laughs) um, I think everything that was in your book um, can also be found in this essay. (laughs) That's not, that's not to, um, uh, that's, that's not to disparage your book, which I greatly enjoyed. And um, as the greatest compliment I can pay the book, ironically, is that I listened to it as an audiobook while I was running. And because running to me is pain and suffering, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I listen to audiobooks to distract me from the experience, um, your, I, I only ever listen to things that I am really enjoying and uh, where I actually really want to be in the moment of listening to them. <laughs> so thank oh, you so much. Thank you. No, that's, um, that Samuel Johnson passage is, is, uh, unnervingly like sums up so much of uh of of what's in my book and it's funny because i have never encountered that passage before one of the things that happens a lot we put out a book like this is that people get in touch and say like i can't believe you didn't include x person or y person and i'm always a little bit exasperated because i'm like look you know these are things that people have been pondering for millennia so i've only i've only got a i've only got a few of those authorities <laughs> in in one book but that one is uh that one feels a little bit like I ought to have caught it. Anyway, um, yeah, thank you. It, it's an absolutely lovely uh, essay on procrastination. And at, um, at the end, he ends by saying that he's been spending the whole essay wondering what he's going to write about. Um, and it's not until the end that he realizes. I did <laughs> so know that he, he was one of history's, you know, greatest or most agonized procrastinators. Although you've got to say, he didn't do too badly, right? Uh as, as someone yes. who was a, who was very troubled by his inability to accomplish anything, I don't think that's really a fair judgment of his uh, <laughs> of, well, of, uh, how think, he lived his life to, that he didn't accomplish it, anything. In some ways, you could say um, he didn't. He he wrote only one novel, and it was a very very brief novel. Um, he wrote only one. He, did he write more than one poem? I think he might have written only. Uh, he he only wrote a few poems, and there was really only one only two good ones among them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, most of his writing was occasional writing. Yeah. And it was all written on the fly, very fast, 
um, with a huge, at the last moment, and with a hugely guilty conscience <laughs> for having wasted time beforehand. Um, <laughs> and he didn't have Twitter, you know. Yeah. Or, um, he couldn't. I mean, my my latest kind of distraction addiction is playing chess. He couldn't just go on Lee Chess and play some online games, you know. Um, <laughs> but it's not distraction. As you put it in the book, um, the call is coming from within the house. It's, it's not technology that's the, that's, uh, that causes us to procrastinate. It's us. Right. I mean, I think definitely that, that Johnson passage points to the fact that this is a sort of a timeless, uh, phenomenon. There's, there's versions of it, as you'll know, in ancient Greek and Roman, uh, writing philosophy as well um i don't i wouldn't say it isn't technology i would say technology makes the problem significantly worse in various ways but yes that there is some there is some desire to not focus in this moment on the things that we 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 feel that we care about the most and that's there uh, sort of uh, prior to the fact that there's then a lot of social media and other things waiting to exploit that that urge in us but yeah i think it comes i think the urge comes first definitely um you I, I sort of remember your answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it for the benefit of listeners. Um, where do you, what do you think motivates this, uh, what you call an inner urge to distract ourselves from whatever we really care about? Well, it might be useful to just sort of um, very quickly say what I kind of take the oh, thesis yeah, of, of the whole book to be, because I think it's one example of, of that. I mean, you know, I don't make... Uh, it's not necessarily one single point throughout the whole book, oh, but I yeah, think there sure. is this basic. Sorry. No, no, I was just diving in somewhere. No, absolutely, just... and I think it's a good. It's very useful to sort of. I'll back out and then go back in, and and that'll be the easiest way to respond. Um, I guess what I'm sort of trying to say in the in the book as a as a whole is that we are, you know, a big part of what what leads us astray in our relationship to time is this sort of fundamental unwillingness to confront the facts of our situation. You get a bit of that in that Johnson passage as well, right? Um, that we have a very short amount of time. We don't know how much time it's going to be. And we don't really have all that much control over that time while we are here on, on the planet. And so we're in this sort of totally vulnerable situation, vulnerable to events. You know, anything could happen at any moment to us or to people that we love. Um, there's no guarantee that you'll get around to doing all the things that you feel it's important to do. In fact, there's a fairly good guarantee that you definitely won't. All these, um, all these different ways in which the stakes are high for us when it comes to how we use our time, and in a in a way that is kind of painful because it 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 brings us back again and again and again to this fact that like this is it. Life is not a dress rehearsal. You have the resources that you have, and at some point. You're just going to have to do the things that you want to do with your small amount of time rather than deferring them to the to the future um and so i sort of re i refer to that in the book as finitude that sort of general situation um and and i think all sorts of the ways that we go wrong with time you can understand as emotional avoidance strategies to help us not actually to help us make the best use of our time but to help us not have to feel the unpleasantness of finitude and I think that's what, to come back to the question, I think that's a big part of what distraction is, especially this inner urge to, to distraction, right? I don't think it's a coincidence that the times that you want most to go off and just scroll through Twitter or binge watch some 
brainless TV show or something. Those are the times when you're working on things that bring you up against your limits, that make you anxious because they matter to you, but you don't know if you can do them well, or because you don't know if they're going to leave you feeling emotionally distressed, or because you know they you don't know if people are going to if it's creative work, say you don't know if people are going to receive it well, all these different things. Those are just really unpleasant. Whereas um this sort of the phenomenology, especially of digital distraction, this feeling that like you can just sort of float off into the infinite realms of the internet and be completely comfortable and not have to bang into any of the limitations of reality. It's it's obviously <laughs> much more alluring than when you I think when you put it like that, when I put it like that, I hope, that than than sort of that unpleasant encounter with the reality of what you're trying to do and the reality of your limited control over it, the fact that you might not get it done in time, a million different things. And and just quickly, not just work, right? I saw so one of the examples I use in the book is, you know, people, we sometimes, you read people talking uh, when they write, sorry, you read people writing when they write about like the crisis of distraction and things like this, as if, uh, you know, we'd all be having these brilliantly deep and vulnerable conversations with our romantic partners say except that our smartphones exist so we're like scrolling through our smartphones instead of focusing on that conversation and of course it's really the other way around it's that it's that deep important high stakes conversations with people you love are trigger discomfort because you are not in control in the way that you might wish you were and scrolling through your phone instead is just more pleasant um so I think we sort of get that back to front. We think of these things as sort of these distracting sources of distraction as kind of alien invaders ripping us away from our happy state of depth. But actually, we're quite keen to not be in that depth uh, quite often because of what yeah. it entails. I've noticed that this also, even with things that people supposedly enjoy, um, I, not not in all circumstances, but in some. For example, people say, "Oh, I've been so looking forward to an opportunity to read this cozy murder mystery that I'm reading." <laughs> so it's just my guilty pleasure, quote unquote. <laughs> and then they sit down with a book and instantly pick up their phone yeah. and start scrolling through the phone instead. Um, I wonder whether you know um, one of the things, one of the 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 things that I wrestle with constantly is this terrible feeling that when you waste time um, in whatever way you want to think of it as being wasted, i.e. when you you kind of spend your time in the way that you haven't wanted to spend it, yeah. it doesn't matter whether it's work or pleasure that we're talking about, um, it gives me this feeling of an irreparable loss. Um, First, because our lives are finite, and also because every, I, I mean, many, many other things can be somehow, can be redone again. You can try again. Um, you know, if you lose a game of chess, it's not a big, I'm going to use chess as an example <laughs> here, but you lose a game of chess, it's not a big deal. Uh, you can you can just go back and you can look at, analyze your game and mm -hmm. think, okay, well, next time I'm not going to play the when they play the London system, I'm going to play D4 here and I'm not going to take the knife. <laughs> and, you know, um, it feels as though there's a chance for do-over, but there's no chance for do-over with your time. That time has gone and you will never get it back. And it was, you, you have a limited supply of it 
and you went and wantonly just kind of destroyed part of that supply. That gives me such a feeling of guilt that it makes me want to escape it by procrastinating some more and scrolling Twitter. I mean, it's just a sort of cycle. Yeah, no, I totally know what you mean. And if and if I wanted to sort of ramp up your existential crisis by one more notch, <laughs> I would say that um, because because everything we do unfolds in time, it actually sort of applies to the chess game too. There are no do-overs even there. There is a do-over in the sense that you described, but the time you spent playing that chess game is is just as gone as any time you, you spent before. So in a sense, like every moment is is for the last time, however we're we're using it. I do think, you know, I I'll try to put this into words. There's a there's a way of thinking about all this that I think is more stressful than it needs to be, and is, you know, it's it's a way I have thought about it and and sometimes fall back into thinking about it, which is which is that notion that that because our time is limited we should feel guilty about the waste or that we should um a sort of flip side of that are people who feel that they have to do like endlessly extraordinary and exotic things with every every day of their lives right because mm. because time is so short how could you not spend it um mm. doing these remarkable things but i think that ultimately again i don't want to speak from the position of someone who's sorted this all out in my own life but ultimately both those reactions that the the guilt and the um you know slightly try hard carpe diem approach that people fall into both of those kind of recapitulate the problem they're both kind of um demanding a kind of perfection of ourselves with respect to time that we can't have and so the the sort of propensity to waste it is sort of just another part of our limitations that i think that we have to in the ideal case sort of accept and come to terms with and 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 the guilt at wasting an hour doing something that you didn't want to do carries within it some notion that it might theoretically be possible to go all the way through life using it exactly right and never waste a moment and never put a foot wrong but i kind of think that only takes the implications of our being finite halfway if you take it all the way being putting feet wrong and missing out on huge numbers of things that would count and being somewhat the slave of our moods and and of uh, unpredictable events and stuff is just like just as baked in as the rest of it. So I, I when I when I put a chapter in the book trying to un, like outline what I think is the main mechanism of distraction and why we're so we succumb to it. Uh, my intention is not to make people feel bad for getting distracted. Um, still less to suggest that I have found a way to to not ever get distracted but but just to sort of for me anyway once you see how that's working it does become easier to not fall for it so often um it doesn't it, if you set it up into a kind of like well okay how can i perfectly eradicate distraction then i i think you're probably falling into the same trap as the person who gets distracted because they want to perfectly execute their project and it stresses them out that they can't guarantee that. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm thinking, I'm still thinking about Samuel Johnson. <laughs> so his character in his novel, Rasselas, mm -hmm. uh, the main character, um, he, he forms this, he's, he is uh, um, a prince who is kept basically prisoner in 
this happy valley, um, this Elysian palace place from which he will only be set free if and when he becomes the ruler himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, um, he start, starts to make some plans that he wants to escape, but he procrastinates, of course, sort of uh, making more concrete plans. Um, and then he, um, then he spends, uh, then he spends some time regretting having procrastinated. And then he realizes that the time he spent regretting having procrastinated was also wasted time. So he regrets having regretted. Um, <laughs> and I think we've all been in that kind of, it, it's just like, <laughs> what is the escape from this cycle? Yeah. I mean, what is the escape? I, I, I think that ultimately it's always just more acceptance, isn't it? It's always just, mm, it's always just mm. um, in, in trying to sort of come to terms with, reality that's like such as the reality that we uh have limited time we then sort of bring in these these other inner voices that are non-accepting that are like well your time is very limited so therefore you've got to use it perfectly well that's a voice of non-acceptance because that's a voice that thinks that uh, your sort of decisions and intent and will and plans for your daily schedule can ever be implemented flawlessly so you've sort of we're constantly performing this kind of uh, uh, jujitsu on ourselves or something, I guess, where, where we we turn our attempts to confront reality into new ways to hold ourselves to unattainable standards instead. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know if there's a way out of it apart from, apart from seeing how completely uh, ridiculous it is. There's a, I've, I've said this number of places, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself to anyone in the audience, no, but there's please. a, there's a there was a british born zen nun zen master called uh Jiu Kennett Peggy Kennett who um by all accounts was a difficult character in many ways but who um described her teaching style as being uh that her job was not to um lighten the burden of the student but to make it so heavy that he or she would put it down and i just love this kind of i think this relates to sort of the via negativa as an approach to philosophy and theology as well. Just this idea that like sometimes the most important thing you can do is just see how ridiculous and impossible is the thing that you were trying to do, the philosophy that you were trying to live by. Um, uh, and, and there's just huge liberation in being able to see that because then you sort of stop fighting that battle. And in the book, I'm sort of saying, if you're trying to find a way of managing your time that will enable you to get everything done or make time for everything that feels like it matters, let me show you why that's completely impossible. And it's not because you haven't found the right time management technique or because you don't have enough self-discipline. It's that it's completely structurally impossible, not in the gift of humans to do something like that. Because then you know, it's not that you need an alternative philosophy. It's just that you get to be like, oh, great, I can put down that burden and just focus on some things that matter. And I think that, um, you know, we dis- just to get back to distraction for, for a moment, we, um, if we, if we distract ourselves because we're worried that we won't do a perfect job or that we can't guarantee getting it done in time or that we can't guarantee this or that other thing, well, how liberating to know that you to have to realize that you know you definitely can't guarantee it you definitely can't know that it'll work you definitely can't know that people will receive it well you don't have that control because then you might as well 
just do it anyway, right? I mean, then then the stakes have been lowered in an important way. Um, and likewise, people dead set on trying to eradicate their distraction. You know, maybe it would be helpful to realize that um, you can't achieve that kind of absolute godlike control over your own attention. And then maybe you could just sort of let that drop and spend more of your time focusing on the things you wanted to focus on. I think there's also, um, I can't remember if you talk about this, if you cover this in the book as well or not, uh, since it's just something that I think of kind of obsess over a lot, which is <laughs> that there is um, a, so if I'd noticed in the book, I would have just thought, yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> but there is this this constant trade-off between, um, or not constant trade-off, but frequent trade-off between the pleasures of doing and the pleasures of having done, which are frequently kind of opposite things. So, for example, um, the example I always give is I used to be a professional dancer and dance is the kind of ultimate state of absolute joyful absorption. Mm -hmm. If you're dancing well, it's the complete chick sent me high in flow state. Yeah. Um, but once you finish dancing, unless it was a performance or it was videoed or something, once you finish dancing, it's gone. Yeah. That's it. Um, a dance is completely ephemeral. There's no, there's usually no product mm. to show for it. There's no achievement. There's generally very little money. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's also, um, I, I, I came to, f um, you can come to feel more and more. Um, it can come to feel also very empty, um, even though at one level it feels as though the most kind of naturally joyous thing you can possibly be doing with your time. Um, you can also feel as though what's left afterwards. Um, and it's the opposite thing happened when I was an academic. Um, back when I was an academic, I remember that whenever we got together with friends to um, have drinks or dinner or chat or something, um, people would immediately say, almost everybody would say, I really ought to be working. But, <laughs> and just this endless kind of anxiety that didn't allow you to fully enjoy any moments of leisure because you always ought to be working. Well, why ought you to be working? And I guess it's for that satisfaction of having done that you are ultimately working. Yeah, that is really interesting, and I'm very, very interested in the in the dance uh, case, especially because I I've talked to many people um, or various people and read others, you know, uh, writing about dance as a sort of pure expression of occupying the moment of being time as certain different philosophers mm. and spiritual people have, have put it um but i haven't heard it i haven't heard the part about it being strangely empty because it's so what ephemeral or evanescent or or, or something um and that is really interesting I, I do write in the book a lot about the way that our the way that we treat time has this effect of deferring value and meaning of life to the future so that we're judging every moment uh, primarily by its utility for a goal, and that that sort of leads to meaning and value being vacated in the in the present mm. in the present moment. Um, 
in a sense, I would argue that that um, feeling of sort of accumulating a body of work, which presumably is, the, is something that academics do have, even if they feel guilty about work or don't enjoy doing the work or something, they are accumulating a body of work in a way that a dancer isn't in an obvious way. That on some level, I want to say that that is sort of, it's illusory in some sense. It doesn't have the same value as the absorption in the moment because, you know, you can't take it with you and uh, it isn't really yours in any meaningful sense after you're gone. I don't know that means it isn't valuable to sort of do things that, that last, that outlast you. Um, anyway, this thought is meandering at this point. Yeah, yeah. I, well, academics work is particularly non-meaningful in that way because most of it is not only read by very few people, but even written in such a way as to be kind of uh, horrible to read <laughs> for people who are reading it. Um, right, and there are incentives that reward sort of, um, you know, finding a distinction that hasn't been made because it's too fine to matter to most people and making that distinction, you know, and things like that. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to contribute original knowledge in academia that are not necessarily uh, very meaningful. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And often doing so in in just the most completely unreadable, forbidding prose, which will cause suffering to read it rather than enjoyment. Um, <laughs> uh, this is a particular bugbear of mine, so I won't go into it too much. Yeah, I think, you know, so I wrote a book about um, the dance experience. Um, and a large part of the reason why I wrote the book was to try to hold on to those fleeting experiences and also to kind of have something to show for it because um, I got injured, I got old, and I'm no longer dancing very often anymore. So I wanted to kind of hold something in my hand and take something away from it. Um, even though I've got, I, I, you know, I definitely don't think it will outlive me in any way. Um, it's only purely for my, for myself. Right. Um, and that is trying, trying to get some of the pleasure of having done out of that pleasure of doing. It's making me think of a, of an article I read once in the New Yorker and a topic that now I think about it does sort of fascinate me in a nerdy way, which is to do with the, attempts to protect the intellectual property of choreography and how hard that is compared to, you know, people making movies or writing books or recording music. And I think, I think it was probably to do with the Martha Graham company, the, the book, the story that mm -hmm. I recall reading, but that, yeah, that these attempts to, these attempts to uh, sort of copyright, basically the, the ways in mm -hmm. which people dance are, are, are as I recall, extremely complicated and controversial compared to just, you know, copywriting some paragraphs in a book or something, and then you can't copy them. Yeah, absolutely. Because the likelihood that you would, the number of combinations of letters you can have for words versus the number of ways in which the human body can move. Right. I, I guess you can copyright an entire ballet, but um, smaller segment sec, sections of things, there's just Movement not only has a vocabulary, it has a grammar, i.e. there are just some movements that more naturally flow from other movements, mm -hmm. and therefore certain sequences that just kind of go together. But yeah, it used to be a, uh, a big thing in tango as well, that people would try not to do their, uh, try to invent signature uh, figures and little miniature choreographies of their own sequences. And 
you would try to dance them not very often because you didn't want anybody to, you wanted people to be impressed by them, but you didn't <laughs> want them to be able to, you wanted them to be your like signature thing, but you didn't want people to copy them. Right. It, it's so interesting, especially because, <laughs> because like dance has this role as a kind of, you know, uh, something ecstatic, something spiritual, something beyond the world of uh, 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 commerce and, uh, and and all the rest of it. And now I'm thinking as well about the fight that there was over um, Bikram yoga, another another big intellectual oh, property yes. dispute and attempts to say that certain ways in which you move the body are uh, proprietary to the person who, who thought of doing it that way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> um, I So one of the things you say is that um, – Oh, sorry. I just want to say one last thing on this topic of distraction. Yeah. Or maybe not the last thing, but I want to say one <laughs> more thing right now that I think about it. So I also, I, um, I had a, um, a correspondence, a letter correspondence in public with Mir Ayal, who is the, he wrote in, in, just, so he yeah. used to be. Yeah, I know a little bit. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, I don't right. mean your, your listeners may not. So I didn't mean to interrupt, but oh, yes. Oh, sure. No, yeah. no. Please interrupt. He's so he wrote a book called, um, as you know, called Indistractable. He used to be on the side of evil. He used to make these um, <laughs> kind of deliberately um, addictive apps. He used to advise companies on how to make their apps more addictive, so that consumers would waste more time, or would spend more time in the app, which they they the consumer would think of as wasted time, but which the marketer could uh, monetize. And then he um, he kind of. Wrote, wrote a book telling you how to sort of get past that. I didn't, I find the book quite disappointing in many ways. Um, but um, I, I also had a sort of letter exchange with Niall. And what I found particularly, I, well, there are two things. One is that I think that he, every generation has found the technology of its time difficult to handle and has worried about the kind of time wasting qualities of it and just um, the way that it distracts you from what's important or what you want to do etc mm -hmm. and Niall says um, I think it's in his book Hooked actually when he's actually advising the corporations he says um, the ultimate goal of a habit forming product is to solve the user's pain mm -hmm. by creating an association so that the user identifies the company's product or service as the source of relief. And then he says, all behavior, all behavior is driven by the desire to escape discomfort. It's all about pain, which means if all behavior is driven by the desire to escape discomfort, then time management is pain management. <laughs> An absolutely grim view of the world. <laughs> Well, I really like Nier, and I think he's um, very. I also think he's, in my thinking anyway, I guess he plays a really useful role as a kind of a gadfly or something because he's, he's. I think he's absolutely um, on point to talk about how how easy it is to blame technology. And the other point that I can I, I can't recall the passage, but I can imagine where he's going with what you're talking about. There is like, if that's true, and it's sort of I don't I think there's a that is a probably a legitimate way of seeing the world what why why do we give people a pass who make you know lovely soft furnishings for your house and not and then get really uh exercised by social media networks they're both sort of taking a situation that is dissatisfying to you and trying to offer some sense of satisfaction and uh 
they both have an interest in maybe finding ways to make you feel that your current situation needs to change. So like this might be a critique of consumer capitalism, but I'm not sure it, it, it I think he might say it, it's it's the, this idea that it's um uniquely a problem of the of the electronic media is 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 not the same. Now, I then I'm not saying I agree with that entirely because I do think that there is there's it's almost like a threshold argument I want to make. I think that there's a certain point at which the amount of minute to minute second to second data that internet company can gather about you and then use algorithmically to serve you more and more things to seize your attention i think they're a different we're in a different place with some uh, with with social media and 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 smartphones than we are that this might be a this might be a way of being that's kind of fine just as long as tech doesn't get too good at it as it were um and then i suppose the, the thing that i always want to say not just to not just to near, but to lots of people, all sorts of people make this argument in different forms that not his argument, but this one I'm about to say, which is that, you know, oh, people worried about TV rotting the brains of, uh, of the people who first had TV. And then the, if you go back, it turns out that they thought radio was going to corrupt the youth. And if you go far back, far enough back, you get like, you know, Socrates thinking that writing is a bad thing. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the I always want. I always want to sort of object that, um, like, how, how do you know these people were wrong? How, how do you know? I mean, I'm willing to say, in the case of writing, that it's uh, sufficiently important to achieving lots of other goals. That it's a, that it's a good thing we have it. But like, how do you know that the quality of most people's attention in the pre-televisual age wasn't superior to what it was after it? You can't know. I say because, um, as I write in the book, you know. It's very hard to detect that kind of change in the quality of attention because obviously it's it, it's our modern attention is the only tool we can use to try to detect it. So, um, you know, if your life just attention just feels the way it does to us now, we have no easy way to access what it would have felt like to somebody before television, before radio. People who are sort of our age who can remember living without. Um, ubiquitous mobile digital internet connectivity we can make a measure because we can sort of remember what it was like before that specific technological change and so you know i'm prone to being a curmudgeon and moaning about it and saying that it's made life worse in certain ways because Mm. that's the change that i can recognize but like (laughs) i think it's entirely possible that people did it's entirely possible that people did exist in a state of greater sort of attentional absorption prior to the existence of the radio and the television doesn't mean that it was all bad that those things came along absolutely not at all but you know that that could be the case so there might be something interesting that's that goes even deeper here which is that um it's um i'll approach this kind of a little bit obliquely my friend uh, visa khan virasami former guest on this podcast um he um he's giving up smoking at the moment and one of the things he said was um about about smoking was he he realized just how much it was self-medication even though he has no foundational trauma he has no kind of obvious deep unhappiness um yeah. but nevertheless i think the way that he put it was very nice he said 
you can't, when people were telling him, well, you ought not to smoke because it's bad for your health, it smells disgusting, it's expensive, this, that, and the other. And he said, you can't moralize away a load-bearing coping mechanism like that. <laughs> um, it's also an, another an article that I recently read, which was about um, depression among uh, Gen Z um, um celebrities and sports people. It was about um, Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles and uh, other sports um, personalities. And um, it said there is too much emphasis on kind of, when there's too much emphasis on sort of self-realization, which in a sense is connected to this idea of efficiency, using your time efficiently is using it for self-fulfillment and self-development, etc. And um, the writer, whose name I forget, but I will link all this in the show notes, says, um, for most people, the self is a route to hell. Um, I'm just really struck by those things in this context, that in a sense, the kind of of our deepest happiness is in being in the moment, but being in a moment in the moment in a way that is actually kind of self-forgetful, um, being absorbed in something that feels outside and greater than the self. Um, and dance, the particular magic is that it both is feels like something outside you that is just like passing through you, for which you're just kind of the vehicle, and yet mm-hmm. it's also you. So that's um, that I think is what gives dance it's particularly makes it particularly easy to attain this chick sent behind flow state through dance uh, um but yeah it's anyway sorry i don't know where i'm going with this no so i think that's, that, that all <laughs> that all resonates hugely with me and of course it's you know it's it's absolutely central to lots of the buddhist philosophy that i've spent a bit more time on than than quite a few channels of western philosophy actually um uh, the the that the um yeah i mean the the, the ways in which we the, the the ways it the, the ways in which we feel the need to firm up this sense of discrete selfhood um and then go about doing that uh i i don't know whether it you'd quite i'd quite want to go all the way to saying that that the self just is to any sort of awareness of self is is pain and suffering intrinsically mm-hmm. but that but that a lot of the strategies that we seem to deploy psychologically to hold on to that sense of sovereignty or control or like being on top of things knowing what we're doing uh which is all very closely related to my thoughts about time and how we live in time that that they just they they end up creating suffering because they create this kind of brittle shell against which reality is constantly colliding in in unpleasant ways and actually that the path to a much more meaningful way to live is to is to in certain ways anyway weaken those the walls of that shell so that you can uh, so that you can be in reality uh, as a as an organic part of it rather than constantly trying to subdue it or being subdued by it or banging into it in other ways <laughs> well i think this kind of constant search for productivity hacks and it's been one of the one of my least productive activities is reading uh, oh, yes. and watching um, <laughs> um, productive things that will promise to offer productivity hacks. Um, it's this kind of a hope that there is some simple solution to um, 
you know, deep, deep rooted sort of limit, uh, just that there's some way of transcending um, uh, the limitations and not accepting trade-offs and just kind of finding the perfect answer. Right, exactly. Yes, I think it is ultimately, it's this attempt to be, uh, one way I've sometimes put it, it's like it's an attempt to be free from time to to get into a position where you're sort of on top of or in front of your life. You're sort of the air, contra- air traffic controller of, of your reality, um, which can only lead in the end to frustration because it's, you know, it's Baron Munchausen pulling him to trying to pull himself out of a swamp by his own hair or whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a thing you can't do as opposed to freedom in time and freedom in the reality in which we, you know, inescapably, uh, find ourselves. So yeah, there's a lovely quote in Arnold Bennett's book, uh, how to live on 24 hours a day from 1908, which I quote in, in my book about talking about how many people have this feeling that the years I know this by heart pretty much now. The years slip by and slip by and slip by, and they have not yet been able to get their lives into proper working order. And um, it's this kind of like I've heard so, so so much recognition in this oh in this in this notion. <laughs> but what I'm but what I'm trying to sort of get at, I think, in the in what my stuff on this is that that feeling that you think you're chasing that that goal of having life in proper working order for most of us anyway is we're defining as proper working order something that is in fact not attainable that is a kind of um omnipotent dominance over our time and our lives the feeling that we're sort of finally in control now life is easy now real life can begin meanwhile we're still scrambling to sort of get everything into proper working order um but i think that this is a this is sort of cruelty to ourselves to hold ourselves to that to that standard because it's a standard that that can't exist in reality because who we are is people who are always going to be neglecting one meaningful thing in order to do another meaningful thing, neglecting a million meaningful things in order to do one meaningful thing. We're always going to be people who um, something terrible could happen to in the next minute. Um, you know, we're always going to be people whose whose plans are uh, defeated by contact with reality. Um, and so if you go through life thinking, yes, exactly. If you go through life thinking, <laughs> thinking, you know, next week, next month, I'm going to find the techniques or the the level of self discipline that is required to um to finally do this, then you're just you're just defining your actual life as inadequate in a way that you don't. There are reasons why we do it, but you don't need to um you don't need to do. I saw a tweet weeks ago now, but something along the lines of you know how every every plan i've ever made for self development or self change or something relies on me waking up tomorrow with 20 times as much self discipline as i've ever demonstrated on any day of my life uh up until now and i think that's a big that's often a big factor isn't it it's like that, that, that somehow we're going to find a personality that we don't yet have that yes. is going to um that is going to make us invincible in this uh in this battle and i say Hon- it's not going to yeah. happen <laughs> Honestly, one of the things that I, I mean, I know we're not we're not going into practical solutions now, but one of the things that has most helped me, even though it's a completely sort of obvious thing, is the idea that you don't have to wait to till tomorrow. It's got, uh, the, the, I, that sort of feeling that today is messed up. I'll start again tomorrow, yeah, or yeah, this week yeah. is messed up, or this month, or whatever, or I'll start it. Um, 
uh, uh, we, we recently had Nowruz and which is the Persian New Year. I'm a, I'm Indian Parsi and, um, but, so this is one of our fest. It's not our New Year, which is in mid August, but it's kind of one of our festivals. Okay. And I cling to these kind of new, new year style dates. It's like, oh, it's Diwali and it's, oh, it's, um, Onam, which is, um, you know, uh, Tamil New Year. Oh, it's, uh, Nauru's or whatever. Right. right. Now my new life of perfect productivity, <laughs> management of my time, et cetera, begins. Um, right. And the more sort of, the more connected you are to multiple cultures, the more of these opportunities you have in the course of a year, <laughs> yes. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Nauru's happened. Of course, I woke up feeling quite just, I can't shake off this magical thinking of, okay, now I'm going to get myself in gear. And of course, it's already gone wrong. And now Ruse was quite recently. Um, and I, um, but I, the, the one of my mantras is kind of, you don't have to wait till tomorrow or this afternoon or next week, next month, whatever. The, you know, right. the new, the new year begins now. <laughs> it's no, one absolutely. of my kind of silly yeah. mantras. I know I'm so with you on that. And this kind of this lure of a fresh start and having a sort of absolutely perfect from now on kind of life. It seems very obvious once you think about it, right? It's just a way of of holding on to that to that illusion of one day sort of clambering on top of everything and finally mastering life. It's not ju- and it's not just that you don't need to wait for such a fresh start. It's that like it doesn't really make any sense to to do that because that you know there's no such thing uh, that you are here in your life as it is and any fresh start that you launch will be launched by you same old personality same old same old problems and tendency towards uh procrastination so um you know i think it's uh it's really useful to be able to learn a little bit to turn into the discomfort of um of doing it now instead of putting it off until you've made a fresh start Okay, one of the things you say uh, sure. um, in the book, or at least in, in the summary of the book that I read, um, I can't remember whether you put it exactly this way in, in the book itself, because uh, it was in the audiobook. Um, the real measure of any time management technique is whether or not it helps you neglect the right things. Um, can you say a bit more about that? Sure. I think this goes to the heart of what we've been talking about about existing in in as finite creatures in a world of infinite hypothetical possibilities and infinite obligations and infinite ambitions it's just that um we are always by definition going to be neglecting almost everything at any at any moment uh and by the end of our lives can expect not to have done the vast majority of the things that would have been meaningful things to do with our lives because there's just no reason to imagine that that there's any fit between our time and and the 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 realm of things that matter and so i think a big problem with the worst kind of time management and productivity advice i suppose is that it functions basically as a way to as an enabler right it functions to help you avoid that fact and to kid yourself that Either you could get absolutely everything done that you could think of, or at the very least that you could get everything important done that you could think of. And if that's not true, which I think it isn't because of our situation, then I think that a really good time management technique is best thought of as the one that sort of 
guides you through this process of consciously deciding what you won't be doing and of course what you will be doing but but one that sort of has both sides of that coin baked into it um instead of this kind of that sort of endlessly putting off or trying not to think about the um the the part about not getting things done so uh, that that's i guess what i what i meant by that line i think um so you talk about fomo in the book and i remember one of the things you say is um uh don't worry about fomo just realize that you will miss out on most things <laughs> no matter what you do um so you needn't fear that well, that's just an inevitability this is the shape of, of of most of the arguments that i'm making in the book right i mean it's like it's liberating to see that something you're spending your life struggling to avoid uh is uh is completely unavoidable mm. because then you can stop struggling and FOMO case is a, is a great one, I think, because baked into that concept of the fear of missing out, there is this strange notion that it might be possible to not miss out. Um, and and once you really think about how absurd that is, because you know even before digital technology connected us to so many more opportunities and possibilities and felt demands and obligations, there was an infinite amount we could do. Now it's even harder to ignore it because it's sort of it's sort of collected and curated and put in front of our faces on such a relentless basis. But once you see that there's just an absolutely um, unbridgeable mismatch between the time you'll have and the, the, the things that you could do, avoiding missing out becomes a sort of utterly so obviously silly that, that it's hard to put much effort into it. And again, it, this is not some sort of recipe for despair or something this is it's precisely then i would argue that you can pour your focus and your energy and your effort into doing a few things that you do because you have you, you have surrendered this 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 sort of wasteful uh use of energy and attention which is trying to do something impossible trying to get to the point of not missing out i mean i still struggle with this completely but but i i it has really helped, especially in my case, I think, since becoming a parent, which is sort of makes certain universal truths harder to ignore um, about the finitude of, of your daily time. Um, that, you know, it's, it, it's really helpful to me if I'm feeling, you know, guilty that I should be working when I'm with my son, or to some extent, guilty that I should be with my son when I'm working, as I'm sufficiently sort of uh, productivity conditioned like everyone else to, to feel more often guilty about work, which is a bad sign. Um, it, it's very useful to remember that the, 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 that that sense of guilt is an attempt to sort of solve an equation that you can't solve, right? I mean, you can't, there isn't, there isn't a way of doing this that, um, that gives all the time that meaningful work might demand to that work. And there isn't a, t- a way of doing it that gives all the time that a, that a relationship with a child um, might demand to that child. It just can't be done. And mm. that is, I think, incredibly liberating thing to see. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how you divide things up then. If you don't work enough to earn a living, that's a problem for your family. And if you, and if you um, work so much that you never see anyone in your family, that that's a problem as well. But but the idea that there must be some perfect resolution to it 
I think it's so useful to remember that that is why that is a why that is impossible. It's not that I haven't figured it out. It's that it can't be done. I think it's also. Um, uh, I apologize for making this podcast kind of all about me, um, but your book <laughs> okay. does have this effect that um, it's such a kind of personal exploration of this of these themes that it's the kind of book that, as you're reading, you're thinking, "How does this apply to me?" Um, and one of my personal things, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, is that I have a kind of opposite of FOMO, which is um, that I notice that that the successful life and the life in which people have achieved, quote unquote, a great deal, uh, is uh, in lives that were very single-mindedly dedicated to one thing. And I have done the opposite of that. I've been like, I've got the Mr. Brook in um, Middlemarch syndrome. <laughs> um, for anybody who's read that novel, Mr. Brook is constantly, whenever people bring up any topic, Mr. Brook says, oh, yes, I know all about that. I went into that very deeply once, you know. Um, I, I, I examined that in great detail at one time. Um, I have a little bit of the kind of, Mr. Brooks syndrome, which is the the jack of all trades, and um, a sense that if I had settled to one thing, um, then maybe I could have made something of myself. You know, I'm putting all of these all of these phrases into very heavy inverted air air commas, <laughs> which you you can't listeners <laughs> can't see, but I I am. Um, but that kind of there seems to be a again another trade-off between the sort of search for excellence and and not even just excellence but almost everything rewards really deep and sustained and long attention but at the same time um it in some ways makes for a less rich life um you know if i wanted to have a successful life i should have either been a dancer in full stop or or been a writer in full stop or been academic in full stop instead of doing a bunch of different things badly. <laughs> I should have just like put all my focus into one thing. And um, that kind of narrative of, well, I've always known I wanted to do X and Y and I've been fascinated by such and such since I was a child. Um, I have an envy of that kind of focus because i feel if you really want to make a contribution in something you have to actually dedicate yourself not full time to it but full time in the sense in the horizontal sense rather mm -hmm. than the vertical sense rather than all the hours of your day or something like that but in the sense of kind of as an ongoing thing whereas i've kind of done things in like five year or ten year blocks i mean yeah and i sort of i i'm trying to sort of uh situate myself relative to that because in one sense I have been incredibly single-minded since a very young age about wanting to write but on the other hand I feel like very much a generalist in the in the things I've written about and I have not I don't feel like I've gone deep into a, a specialism at any point in my journalistic career or anything like that um so I sort of feel what you're saying I suppose the, the thought that comes to my mind at the general point here is you know I'm sure there are specific professions where absolutely you do they do need your full focus if you're going to excel uh in them and that's a sort of sort of domain specific thing but the um 
the thing I want to say sort of most instinctively to that is like, well, but any of these different approaches are still trade-offs, still involve trade-offs, right? You're still you're you're still deciding to lose something in order to gain something. And that's, you know, it may well be that there are better trade-offs to make than than others. Um again, sort of specific to a specific career or something. But I think that mostly when we when we envy people who are different from us or we feel that we should have done that, when we feel like, oh well, I've been insufficiently focused, I should have given all my time to one thing and presumably there's some that goes in the other direction as well people thinking i shouldn't have just been this i should have tried other things as well i think usually where that feeling comes from not accusing you of this but you can tell me if it feels right (laughs) um is from the idea that that person those other people it's from a belief that those other people in that other camp have have cracked this code of being limited have found a way to not feel like they're making a compromise that is painful to them. And I don't think that's true because I don't think you can avoid some kind of compromise, some kind of settling, some kind of, you know, um, deciding to pay one price in return for something else. I mean, clearly people make better or worse decisions about how to spend their lives. Um, but, um, I think there's very often a notion that someone else know has figured out a way of, of escaping these, um, limitations that we sort of torment yes. ourselves with because actually they haven't <laughs> it's it's funny i'm i'm just i took a glance whilst um uh um and oh one of my my dear friend uh zubin um my kind of cousin quote unquote um i call him my we're not actually related but i call him my cousin for complicated reasons zubin <laughs> um ha- <laughs> i asked if anyone had questions for you and zubin writes yes please Practical exercises to handle procrastination. No theory. A tangible <laughs> exercise I can do to beat procrastination in the present minutes. <laughs> and um, I, I, I mean, I'm not laughing at Zubin. I'm kind of laughing at all of us, you know, at the state of uh, the human condition. Um, I mean, I think there's a, I think there's a role for practical exercises. I can come up with some thoughts if you would like me to answer it. I mean, I'm not. Um, I don't think. Um, uh, uh, sure, I, I, if you want to. I mean, try or I can talk around. Sure. I can talk around it anyway. I mean, you know, I think. Um, I, I think uh, the the point that I'm always trying to make anyway is that is that you know, practical exercises don't matter in comparison to the theory in the following sense, which is that you can misuse if you if i think that if you're out to do something impossible with regard to time to sort of win this struggle once and for all you can co-opt and misuse any productivity technique for that for that purpose and it will just make your life worse but i think by the same token at least a lot of productivity techniques approached in uh the right spirit are totally useful i often give the example have you come across the pomodoro technique do you know about that oh yes right Yes, I I personally use that, um, and I my thing is, um, oh sorry, you're going to tell your tips. I was going <laughs> to feel tell free. My no, tips, no, but, yeah. we'll help. We'll we'll help um, zoom it out one way or another. Um, so my um, my tip is the kind of um, sort of opposite of having a minimum, which is have a maximum number of working hours. Right. So um, I use the. I use the Pomodoro technique more for movement than anything. So I set the timer for 25 minutes and then I do five minutes moving around. Right. 
I dance to a song or I do a few sun salutations or, you know, I walk around the block or I potter around the house getting housework done. Mm-hmm. And then I go back to it. And then every two hours you do a half hour. Yeah. Break. That's the, that's the Pomodoro technique, basically. Yeah. But the, the other key thing to me is that if I do, uh, I, I aim to do, um, four hours of concentrated work. So not counting the five minute breaks, et cetera. And that I find is really a lot in a day. Yeah. If you are also exercising, making food, um, you know, I I don't know, looking after your kids, making love to your partner, whatever it might be. If if you have something else in your life other than work, yep. um, that's already a lot of hours, yep. of concentrated, focused hours. And it's much better than doing seven or eight hours kind of half distracted. Absolutely. And I, um, but that is a maximum, i.e. if I had a day that was quite disorganized or I found it hard to focus for whatever reason. And I, I did one hour or two hours. I'm like, okay, that's great. That's what I did today. Um, if it's a working day, I do have days off when I'm not trying to do any hours. Um, and, but four hours is the maximum. So at four hours, I have, I, I stop. Um, and the fact that I definitely stop after four hours seems to help me to get four hours make it more likely that four hours get done yes we're on the same that's, we're we're absolutely on the same wavelength with that i um i i i mean i've got to i divide things up slightly differently but yes that same that that basic idea um of setting a really sort of relatively low seeming maximum but then doing it uh and it and you'll as they say move the needle far more than uh sort of binging for a couple of days and then not really doing anything in the following days i was going to I was just going to say about the Pomodoro technique that it's a good example in my life of something that I used originally when I was a deep, you know, deep in productivity geekdom to try to win this struggle with time. And it didn't work like all the others and made me more stressed like all the others. But that sort of having come through that in many ways and out the other end, partly that's what writing this book was about. Um, uh, it's a perfectly useful way to organize your time, as long as you don't see it as the source of your salvation, you know, it's as long as you don't see it as um, some sort of magic mm. bullet for um, for for transcending limitation. And I think that's that applies to an awful lot of techniques. One that I really like for deep procrastination, just in case this is helpful to anyone sort of stuck in a, a total rut. Um, this comes it's it's in various different contexts it's got various different names but the basic idea is just that you get your notebook or a piece of paper and you write down a single thing that you're that you need to do and are willing to do and you do it and then you put a line through it and you write one thing beneath it that you're willing to do and need to do and you do that and you put a line through it it's this kind of in, and, and so on and so on right and it's this incredibly um almost silly kind of uh take holding yourself by the hand um approach to just figuring out one thing that you actually are willing to do right now uh that makes your world slightly more slightly better than it was and and doing that thing and then just repeating and uh if you're deep in a rut of sort of non-motivation i think this can be an incredibly useful technique because it just narrows the it shortens the time horizon right down to what actually matters which is just which is just literally like are you going to do something right now that 
is worth doing or are you going to sit fretting about not doing things? And um, mm. it's amazing how quickly the momentum can build from, from that if you're really stuck in a rut. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so that's my Oliver, tip for today. <laughs> Oliver, is there a passage from your book that you would, you would uh, like to oh, read? Oh, goodness, I hadn't given that any thought. Let me um, grab a copy. Hold on. Sorry, I'm just doing two things at once here. So this is a, from a section called The Last Time. And uh, here I've been making some points about how parenting makes you see uh, the finiteness of time in a different way. But now I'm moving on. So it goes like this. And yet I hope it's clear by now that none of this applies only to people who happen to be the parents of small children. Certainly it's true that a fast developing newborn baby makes it especially hard to ignore the fact that life is a succession of transient experiences, valuable in themselves, which you'll miss if you're completely focused on the destination to which you hope they might be leading. But the author and podcast host Sam Harris makes the disturbing observation that the same applies to everything. Our lives, thanks to their finitude, are inevitably full of activities that we're doing for the very last time. Just as there will be a final occasion on which I pick up my son, a thought that appalls me, but one that's hard to deny, since I surely won't be doing it when he's 30, there will be a last time that you visit your childhood home, or swim in the ocean, or make love, or have a deep conversation with a certain close friend. Yet, usually, there'll be no way to know in the moment itself that you're doing it for the last time. Harris's point is that we should therefore try to treat every such experience with the reverence we would show if it were the final instance of it. And indeed, there's a sense in which every moment of life is a last time. It arrives, you never get it again, and once it's passed, your remaining supply of moments will be one smaller than before. To treat all these moments solely as stepping stones to some future moment is to demonstrate a level of obliviousness to our real situation that would be jaw-dropping if it weren't for the fact that we all do it all the time. And then I briefly talk about how there are economic and social pressures that uh, lead us to behave this way, but then I go on and yet we'd be fooling ourselves to put all the blame on capitalism for the way in which modern life so often feels like a slog to be got through en route to some better time in the future. The truth is that we collaborate with this state of affairs. We choose to treat time in this self-defeatingly instrumental way, and we do so because it helps us maintain the feeling of being in omnipotent control of our lives. As long as you believe that the real meaning of life lies somewhere off in the future, that one day all your efforts will pay off in a golden era of happiness, free of all problems, you get to avoid facing the unpalatable reality that your life isn't leading towards some moment of truth that hasn't yet arrived. Our obsession with extracting the greatest future value out of our time blinds us to the reality that in fact the moment of truth is always now, The life is nothing but a succession of present moments culminating in death, and that you'll probably never get to a point where you feel like you have things in perfect working order, and that therefore you'd better stop postponing the real meaning of your existence into the future and throw yourself into life now. There you go. Thank you so much, Oliver. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O or patreon.com slash 2 for tea. Have a wonderful week.